This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners, to today's edition of the AC Podcast. It's me and Andy today. Terry is taking a break. This doesn't happen very often anymore, just you and me. No, it's kind of it's kind of exciting. I was thinking to myself, you know, it's it's a Steve and Andy show, I guess, today. Yeah, <laughs> just like the good old days. Like the good old days. For those of you who've listened from the beginning, you remember those days. Yeah. Uh, now... Before we jump into the topic for today, uh, we have an announcement to make. Now, when you think about Andy, our listeners, you may not think of him as, um, eh, I don't know, he doesn't come off as an elementary school teacher type. A children's author. (laughs) Yeah, but he does have a soft spot for children, and that is showing today. Andy, what's going on on your end with The Human Project? Yeah, we have officially launched our second children's book called What Am I Worth? It's a book that I wrote with Rachel McKenzie. Uh, we're excited about this book. Really uh, thankful for Rachel and just the, you know, she is a, a, a teacher. She works with children. And and I've known her for a number of years at Northview working with children. And, you know, when we first started this project, it'd be great writing children's books with her. It's exciting to see that we're into our second book. And I'm personally excited about this book because it was inspired by my niece, Matlin. Mm. For those of you who were at the the conference or have seen the Human Project uh, videos, uh, Matlin is in the, what is it, the second video right. about human value. Uh, Matlin was born in Calcutta, India prematurely, and she has cerebral palsy. And so, as I've watched, you know, Matlin get older, as I've seen her go to school, as I've seen her now graduate and, and in life, and, and just seeing all that she's struggled through, seeing all the surgeries that she's gone through, seeing how difficult it's been for her to do things like writing and walking and, you know, and had conversations with her about how, you know, she would love to know what it's like to jump or what it's like to run. So I, we wrote this book very much inspired by her. So it's a story about a girl from Calcutta that gets adopted into a circus family. And in this family, she's trying to find her place and struggling to find her place. And and to me, there's, I think, a lot of analogy or metaphor here about just life in general, that life is like a circus. Mm. And for a lot of us, you know, we're trying to find our place in the midst of it. And there can be those low moments where you don't feel like you're finding your place or you don't fit. Uh, and you really begin to question your value. And so, you see this taking place with this little girl. And then, you know, the gospel story interrupts her in this as she's as she's learning her value, but learning her value from God's perspective. Yeah. So for those of you listeners who are parents of young children, um, this is a really great resource. When the first book came out titled, What Am I? I remember reading it to my then four-year-old girl and she grasped the concepts right away. I mean, you were talking, I mean, you were writing about basically theological anthropology, but in a way that a four-year-old could grasp it and 
And in fact, I was invited to teach a Sunday school a few weeks ago, and I used that exact analogy, and everybody understood it immediately. And so I'm really excited about uh, this new installment. Of it, the- it took, you know, it's interesting you say that, Steve, because it took about a year's worth of thinking about this subject. You know, how do you break it down being made in the image of God and our value as human beings? How do you, how do you break those huge concepts, break those down and use different analogies that a child could understand. So it took us a while to think through it. And I got to tell you, shout out to all of you who teach uh, Sunday school. It is way harder than I thought. You know, it's difficult. I've learned a new appreciation for those (laughs) that teach Sunday school. Uh, We currently have a deal going where you can buy one and get one 50% off. So we'd encourage you to pick that up. It'd be a great Christmas present to give to a friend. Connected to that, our annual Apologetics Canada conference is coming up on March 6th and 7th. I'm really looking forward to this one. What about you, Andy? I am as well. This one, as you know, has taken a bit of time to pull together. Uh, It's been difficult for us to get our speakers in line. And the reason is, is we're dealing with a really complicated subject this year. Mm -hmm. Our theme for this year is Back to the Future. Right. And we're going to be talking about some key questions that are confronting Christians in the next 10 years. Now, I should probably say, Steve, this is something you and I have been thinking about for about a year now. We've been, you know, as we think about Apologetics Canada turning 10 years old, right? And we've walked through a decade of doing apologetics. You know, a big question for us is, well, what does the next decade of apologetics look like? And in fact, in December... I'm flying to San Diego to meet up with Lee Strobel. He and I have been chatting on this subject, and we're going to be doing a, an interview together where we'll be discussing this, uh, which I'm looking forward to because those of you who've been following us, you know that it was actually Lee that inspired me to start Apologetics Canada as he was kind of looking at the future in 2010 saying, hey, we have a lot of young people that are leaving the faith. We need to address this issue. And so here we are, you know, 10 years later, and I'm meeting up with Lee again and, and asking, okay, Lee, you know, what do the next 10 years look like from your perspective? Right. Yeah, so this year we have Drs. Fabrice Jorund and Elizabeth Sung, uh, not the Elizabeth Sung from The Young and the Restless. Uh, she's a <laughs> systematic theologian. Um, and also Dr. Jens Zimmerman. And these are not names that you are necessarily well acquainted with, probably, but we've been really focusing lately on not just bringing out apologetic celebrities, if you will, but we've been really zeroing in on the kinds of questions that people are asking and trying to address that instead. That's something, by the way, that I've always loved about the conference, is that the conference has always been focused on the question. What are the questions people are asking right now? And who is an important voice that you need to hear that's addressing this question currently. Personally, it's one of the things I love the most about the conference. It's not a conference about who's the latest celebrity, whatever, theologian, philosopher, apologist. You know, it's not going off of name. It's going off of questions. Well, registration opens on November 1st. So uh, as you're listening to this, if it's November 1st or later, go to apologeticscanada.com and you will see the banner there. Uh, You can go to our conference website and then you can register for our conference right there. Um, I encourage you to do it sooner than later and take advantage of the super early bird and early bird pricing. You can register at the lowest price if you act now. All right. um, What we're going to talk about today is connected to the topic that we're going to discuss at the conference. 
Now, just a little while ago, a friend of mine from Victoria suggested that I watch this new show on Netflix called Unnatural Selection. And then independently, Andy sent a link to me saying, hey, Steve, we should talk about this on our podcast. So obviously, this is uh, grabbing our attention As you and I have talked about what are the big things coming in the next 10 years, you and I keep coming back to this. This is the topic. As well, Steve, you and I have talked with a number of different influential thinkers, Mm. and for them as well. When we say, hey, this is what we've landed on, a a resounding, yep, that's it. That's that's the key issue, yeah. And so if you haven't watched Unnatural Selection, we would really encourage you to go check that out. It's a fascinating four-part documentary, I guess you could call it. And it's all about genetic engineering using technologies like CRISPR-Cas9, for example. Basically, how this technology works is that it basically allows you to edit your genes like you would a Word document. It's precise, it's cheap, and it's really easy to do. And I think that's the key there, Steve, that the show really helped me to appreciate is it's not just that it's doing gene editing, but that it's doing it quickly and cheaply, and it's simple. So much so that uh, as you as you watch the show, the very first character, if you will, the very first person that you encounter is this dog breeder from Mississippi who is a biohacker. Now, biohackers are becoming something of a category. Now, these are people who will order the right kinds of materials, and then they do the biohacking themselves. And some of them experiment on themselves in terms of gene editing. Now, this is how simple this is. I mean, this person is brilliant. This dog breeder is a very intelligent person. But at the same time, this person doesn't have any formal training in gene editing. Uh, He doesn't have any bachelor's or master's or doctorate in this area. But he is, it's the information age. So he's getting all of this information from YouTube and other sources, and he's doing this himself. And this is how, what it's coming to. Yeah. And Steve, I went and looked up uh, to see, is this this real? Because there's this guy, Josiah Zayner in the, in the show who's selling these these kits online. And I went on Amazon and saw that you can, in fact, purchase these CRISPR kits that allow you to do your own you know, gene editing at home, kind of a project. Now, obviously, it's quite simple, and you're doing this with bacteria. But it just goes to show for 170 bucks, you can purchase your own kit to do this at home. I mean, that's how accessible this is. And, and honestly, it should be terrifying. Yeah. And uh, what was really interesting about Josiah Zayner too, he's a biophysicist. What's even more interesting than CRISPR-Cas9 itself is his views on this. It basically, he's a bit of a, if you will, a renegade. Uh, you could call it that, I guess. He, he's a bit of a rebel. You, know, you can see with all of the ear piercings that he has and everything and the hair and whatnot, you get a very distinct sense right from the get-go that he's a bit of a rebel. And his thought is, let's stop talking about 
you know, all of these ethical things, you know, ethical barriers and things like that, that's only going to slow these things down. Like, how are we going to know what the effects of this might be and how this might play out unless we actually use them? So his goal is to make this as accessible and available to everybody. He wants to democratize this technology so that it doesn't belong to just one huge corporation with some kind of a patent on it. But this is in the hands of everybody. Now, is there a risk involved with that? He acknowledges, yes, of course there is a risk. But what's the use of just keeping talking about the potential risks when we haven't even tried anything? Now, with that can open, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, of different aspects or, you know, ethical issues and different questions that kind of just spring out of what we've just said there, Steve. Now, one thing to maybe mention as we continue to discuss this is he's on one extreme where he wants to get this into everybody's hands. But I find it fascinating that an aspect of the show is that there are a lot of people in gene editing right now that are raising red flags going, hey, um, I think we've got a problem here and we've got ethical issues that are looming, not in the future, they're right now. And lawmakers are, are so far behind where the science is right now that you, you have this moment, even in the show, where they're taking this stuff to lawmakers going, hey, you should probably make a law here. You should probably think about the implications, uh, which some countries have, and, and the show mentions places like Germany where it is illegal uh, to do this. But in the United States, it's kind of like, more or less, lawmakers are completely ignorant of what's going on. And one of the major questions that that is an undercurrent of the entire show is, with this gene editing, this isn't just gene editing that, that goes away. This, these are germline editing. In other words, they get passed on. And this is a question that the show raises, especially with something called Gene Drive, the, a guy by the name of Kevin Isvelt, uh, not exactly sure how to say his last name, that he brings up, and I think we should talk about in a moment here, Steve, but once that gets into the population at large, you, you, don't, you don't stop it. What, in other words, it's going to now become a part of, you know, whatever germline you're in. And, and so including humans, this would now forever become a part of the human genetic code is our edits in it, which should terrify us in, in, in that. Just think about this for a moment. What we're talking about here when we talk about the human genome is a complexity that's really difficult to fathom. You know, it's, it's, what is it, three or four billion letters long? Uh, I think I, I heard 6.4 billion letters, and I, so it kind of comes down to 3.2 billion pairs or something like that. Okay, because it seems like that number, I, I hear lots of numbers that are thrown around over the years. Because it was interesting, I saw that too, Steve, that, that those numbers were higher than I've seen uh, documented elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's new information that's come out, uh, but it's around... Uh, 100 million pages of 12-point font code. By the way, that'd take you 37 years to read that like a normal document. Right. And in that combination of letters, if even one letter goes off, it can create some serious problems for your health. That's terrifying, isn't it? To think that here we are, you know, a document that large and so precise that one wrong edit and you've got major health issues, and 
we want to start hacking that. We want to start playing with it. And I think rightly, people are concerned. I think that we we realize we don't have a great track record of yeah. getting these things right. In case our listeners still don't have a, a sort of an appreciation for just how uh, how massive this is. Basically, with this technology, you can edit just about any living being. In fact, all living beings, because you're dealing with the genetic code, basically, right? So we're talking like plants, animals, uh, human beings, bacteria, you know, those kinds of things. And with basically with gene drive, for example, what's happening is this. Basically, the thought behind that is, what if, uh, let's say we have ducks, right? What if we catch a duck, we edit the germline genes of this one particular duck, and then we release it into the wild? And then we'll, in just a few short generations, we'll have this genetically modified ducks everywhere. Now, if you go to some somewhere like Africa, where they're really mightily struggling with uh, malaria... What if you can, using gene drive, get rid of whatever causes malaria or whatever carries malaria in these mosquitoes? You could wipe out malaria in just a, you know, just a short period of time. So that's how massive this can be. Now, Steve, on that note, it did seem that one of the hidden assumptions here is that that edit, say if you're doing mosquitoes, one of the other things that the, talk, the show talks about is ticks in Massachusetts or rodent control in New Zealand. The question though, the hidden assumption there is though, it needs to be advantageous enough to spread throughout the entire species. So just because you've edited one or two or you know a host of them and you let them loose, you're going to have a mix. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that Unless there is an advantage given to it uh, that it's not going to spread throughout the entirety of mosquitoes or ticks or whatever that might be. Yeah, uh, when they were talking about the mosquitoes in Burkina Faso, for example, I was just a little curious how this might spread because what they're trying to do is basically make the uh, mosquitoes sterile. Um, so I was just trying to figure out, okay, how does that lead to getting rid of an entire mosquito population in, in an area because you're not passing that down. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't understand all of this, but I think that goes to show just what kind of this kind of scale that we're talking about here. We could change the entire ecosystem as we know it. And yeah. this then comes down to, for example, human beings as well. So now one way in which this technology can be used is, of course, to treat genetic diseases. So as you watch this documentary series, you follow this one child, Jackson Kennedy, who is missing a pair of genes that he was supposed to get, you know, one from mom and one from dad, but for whatever whatever reason, uh, that's missing from him. And so he can barely see, he's legally blind, and he will eventually lose his sight altogether. But this child, he would love nothing more than to become an astronaut. That is his dream. That is his aspiration. That's all he can think about. With the CRISPR technology, though, there is a chance that he might get his sight back, right? So, which is really promising. Now, imagine, imagine then if we were to, for example, edit some germline genes and things like that so that 
This is now passed down the generations in his line, if you will, going down the generations. Nobody will ever have to worry about struggling with blindness because of that genetic malfunction ever again. Well, and on that note, Steve, within his case, the reason that he has this is because it was passed on to him by it had to be from both his mother and his father. Then he inherited this abnormality, this lack of that gene. So what you're talking about there then is by mending this, what we're saying is there are certain disease, there are certain genetic diseases that we will be able to eradicate, that these will be able to be passed on and we could see these uh, go away. And I think that we would agree, wouldn't we, Steve? Uh, I see this as a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I think what you see in this documentary is, I mean, people with all kinds of different opinions about this technology, right? One, somebody like Josiah Zayner, who says, we need to democratize this. We need to get this in the hands of people as quickly and as widely as possible. Uh, And then on the other hand, somebody like Kevin Isfeld, who says, we have to do this ethically. And the way he wants to do it is we want the consent of the community to do something like the gene drive and so on and so forth. Now, I think no matter where you end up, though, uh, one thing that people are not going to argue about is whether we should use this technology to treat illnesses and genetic diseases. And I think that this is one of the things Josiah is getting at is I think a lot of us would agree that, that we should use this to get rid of genetic diseases. The problem is uh, you can only imagine what will happen with big business on this sort of technology, that these sorts of medical capabilities that are actually quite simple and, in fact, quite cheap could easily become very expensive. Right. One of the aspects that they highlight in the documentary is with illness and just the cost of medical care in the United States because of the way pharmaceutical companies are monopolizing these drugs, right? So in the case of this one, I forget his name, Nick, I think was the name. He's got this genetic condition that basically has him crippled and he is bedridden. He can barely move. He's living on borrowed time. His parents are trying to access this one drug that uses CRISPR technology to potentially treat and even cure this condition. But I mean, just one dose is without insurance is like $125,000 for the first dose. And then after that, it's, uh, I I forget, it was in the tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, So what they were getting at was when these big corporations get a handle on these things and they're, they're now going to use it to profit themselves rather than the people. Right. And that, that's why somebody like Josiah, Josiah Zayner is saying, we need to get these in, in the hands of people. It needs to be democratized so that these big corporations don't have monopoly on this. Now, now here's where the rubber really hits the ethical road. We've been kind of driving that here, and I think that we need to jump uh, headlong into, is that this is such a, a bigger conversation than, say, curing some diseases. Because really, the ethics of curing those diseases, the challenge, you know, ethically that can happen there is, okay, well, how are we going to test 
this sort of technology on humans? How do we do that in an ethical and safe way? So those are those are important questions that that are currently being dealt with, and people are are thinking through. And and really, that doesn't raise a lot of questions. I mean, we've been dealing with that for a long time. But one of the things that the show begins to highlight doesn't quite jump into as much as as I had hoped, but it does highlight. Uh, is that there is a much bigger ethical question that is looming over all of this that rests fundamentally on what we understand to be a human being. And to begin to to raise this question, because there's a lot of people, particularly, uh, I, I would argue, particularly Christians, that don't fully grasp, but I, you know, and truthfully, I would say that most people just don't fully grasp this idea. And it's in the title of the show itself, Unnatural Selection, is a lot of people have this concept that evolution stopped with human beings. And they may not think that explicitly, but implicitly, that's kind of the idea that they have, that evolution perhaps maybe was something in the past, or others, you know, choose not to even think about the idea of uh, natural selection and how that's maybe working. Or they just see that, you know, for different Christians, you've got different views on that. Some would see it being guided by God. Uh, others would see it being just a natural selection. It gets into a whole nother issue that we did a, what we do, a four-part series on that. So you could go back in our podcast and, and listen to us talk on that, uh, to give you different different perspectives, from the young earth perspective to the intelligent design perspective to the, to the theistic evolutionist. But the question, though, that this is all bringing is, evolution didn't stop, isn't finished on whatever worldview you have, natural selection is still at play. What we are now in is this new era where whatever you see being the guiding mechanism, whether that be God, randomness, or determinedness, we're now in this new era where it's now being guided by human beings. So this is the unnatural selection. This is this is now human selection moving forward. So so now we are in the driver's seat of where our, the future of humanity is going, and it raises those questions that we've never had to deal with before. And that that's not just, okay, you know, fixing diseases that bring us back to some sort of normalcy of what a human is, but now there's this bigger question looming with regards to these sorts of technologies that we can now advance what a human being is. Right. So there's often a line that's drawn between treatment and enhancement. Generally speaking, people don't have an issue with, and this was pointed out too in the documentary, people generally don't have an issue with treatment of diseases. But when it comes to enhancement, that's where people are not sure. So one scientist on the show, what he mentioned was, well, if somebody is uh, struggling with blindness, right, and we use this sort of technology to bring his vision up to sort of the normal level, comparable level to everyone else, whatever that might be, nobody has a problem with it. But the moment we say, maybe we should give this one person a vision that is better than everyone else. So his vision is almost like this binoculars that you can control within your eyes sort of a thing genetically. Now everybody has a problem with it. Now the challenge is the line between treatment and enhancement. And sometimes people would put in in the middle, down, down the middle, 
prevention of diseases, right? Like vaccination, for example. So the lines between these three categories are not that cut and dry. No, they're not. They're they're not black and white. Because if you think about it, we enhance ourselves all the time. Uh, We wear clothes. We wear glasses. Or how about this one, Steve? Uh, We work out. Right, I can enhance myself by working out that I can lift more weights and I can, my body looks in different ways depending upon how I enhance myself. Or another enhancement is that I can pay to go to college, I can study, I can, I can learn. Those are all enhancements. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, there, there's also something like your diet, by what you eat, you're enhancing yourself, right? You're trying to keep yourself healthy and all that kind of stuff. And so probably one of the toughest issues to deal with in discussing a topic like this is the problem of that gradient kind of a problem, right? There doesn't seem to be a solid line that you can draw anywhere. And by line, you're talking about what are the demarcations of a human being, That's the question, isn't it? Because when we're trying to figure out what this line might be, we have to know what it is that we're dealing with. And that might give us some boundary conditions, if you will, the boundaries that we must play within. So when we're talking about treatment of diseases, for example, when we're dealing with a human being, because we recognize it as a human being and its human value, there are certain things that you're not going to do. So for example, when you're trying to improve the lives of people, you're not going to do that by killing others, right? Or at least when you think about it long enough, you do realize that's problematic, It's our idea of what a human being is and what its value might be. That gives us the boundaries. Um, We can't cross outside, that sort of a thing. But in this show, I didn't really hear much of that discussion. What is a human being? Well, no, all you get is there's a few scenes where the question is being raised and shown. This is really the dark cloud that's looming over this. And it's interesting to me, Steve, and I think it's so important for our listeners to just appreciate kind of the headspace that we've been in for the last year. As we've been preparing for our next year's conference, as we basically, as we've been saying, okay, this is what's coming in the next 10 years that we have to think about. Okay, so first of all, I think it's fascinating that what has Netflix put out? They put out a documentary on this saying, hey, by the way, this is what we should be worried about coming up here, this sort of thing. And it's like, yeah, that's the headspace we've been in for the last year as we've realized that there are some serious ethical challenges that Christians are going to, and the society at large, is going to have to think about in the next 10 years. But the part that I've found so concerning is and you and I are well acquainted with this, is I have been meeting with some of the top theologians in the world on this question. First of all, I've been finding it quite concerning how few there are. There are so few Christians and even non-Christians that have thought about these issues, that are that have even prepared any sort of answers on them. And that's something that's come up over and over again, where we'll meet with a, an expert But yet, all this expert's able to do is identify the problem and not really prepared to give any sort of argumentation or solution to the issue. So much so that as we've been preparing for next year's conference to talk on some of these issues, we had people that just said to us flat out, no, (laughs) I don't have an answer for you. 
I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure how to address that question. And, and this has been interesting for me because when I got into apologetics, Steve, it didn't take too long to track down who's addressed these issues in the past, you know, and what, what are some solid Christian answers to, you know, these tough questions. These questions, though, about enhancement and about the demarcations of, of what constitutes a human being and the integration of technology with humanity, that is an incredibly complex gray area with very few answers currently and sadly not nearly enough people talking about it in light of how fast all these ethical questions are currently with us and will continue to be in the very near future. So I want to encourage our listeners to, if you haven't, start thinking about it. Um, there are some good resources out there. I'm going to put up on the show notes. Andy and I will put up on the show notes some resources that we might want to recommend to you and start thinking about this thing because whether you like it or not, it's coming um, this is not the sort of thing that is going to go away, I don't think. And the way I explain it to people sometimes is this. What are you going to tell your child when your child one day comes to you and says, Mommy and Daddy, my friend so-and-so is genetically modified to be smarter than everyone else. Why didn't you do that for me? What's your answer going to be? So if you haven't thought about this before, now would be a really good time to start thinking about it. And, and to kind of help you to think about this, let me just kind of describe some of the issues that we're dealing with. And Steve has alluded to some already. When we talk about technology and how far is too far, you know, sometimes it's easy for us to think that, oh, this is technology of the, the future I need to think about. But it's one, of those, it's one of those frog in the kettle moments where we forget that we've been in the hot water for a while. It's just turned up. The heat's just really hot right now that we're starting to think about more than we have. But the reality is, is human beings for millennia have been integrating with technology, such as clothes, as you mentioned, Steve, such as wearing shoes. Those are enhancements. We've been doing things like eyeglasses for a long time, but now we've moved into these new territories where we can do contact lenses and we can even do colored contact lenses. And now we can do laser eye surgery. But with this CRISPR technology, what we're finding is, is is that now we can do something quite different. We can pop the hood on the, the genome, and now we can fiddle with your genetic code so that we can do these same sorts of things, fix eyesight, change eye color. And in fact, that's even part of the show where, and this has been with us for a while, where with in vitro, you can have different fertilized eggs where you can look at those eggs and determine, okay, that one has an eye color I want or a gender that I want or, or, or whatever, right? You can look for these sorts of markers. But soon that uh, embryo will be able to be edited so that I want this height of a child. I want this eye color and this hair color and all those sorts of things are raising important questions for us. You know, should we be doing these sorts of things? And then on top of that, as you mentioned, Steve, there's, a, there's enhancement sorts of issues, like how fast do I want my child to be? How strong do I want them to be or do I want to be? And one of the more disturbing things that the show talked about, uh, Steve, and I'm curious your thoughts on this one, was you know work that they've done on mice where they have been able to prolong the age of mice by 30%. They, they've been able to make mice look younger editing in certain areas, particularly the hypothalamus, but then being able to prolong their, their age. Those are questions humans haven't really had to think about. 
you know, is that an ethical thing to do? Is it an ethical thing to prolong your life? Is it an ethical thing to make you look younger? Now, we've always had this with things like plastic surgery, but now you'll be able to do those sorts of things genetically. And again, raises some profound questions. I mean, we're able to do this in mice. I, I didn't, I had no idea, by the way, that we could do this in mice. It won't be long until you could do this in a human being. And I could only imagine there are many people out there with the money that would love to see this sort of technology come to human beings. Another aspect of this is to, is whenever we think about enhancement, like I said before, in a lot of ways, this is what we've been doing already. And that's the thing that I keep coming back to. Whenever you try to peg an enhancement act as unethical, you think about it just a little bit longer, you realize you've been doing something very similar for a long time. So for example, extending your uh, lifespan, we've been doing that with medical technology for a long time by using vaccines, by using drugs, by using surgeries and all that kind of a thing. That's a good point. I mean, if you just look at the past, we live much longer now than people in the past. I mean, people in the past lived to like 30, 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I think one final thought that I want to leave with is in thinking about this issue, we can get into two um, pitfalls to, on two extreme ends. One is to think about this technology as, okay, this is the way to utopia. So have this sort of uncritically accepting attitude. That's probably not a good idea. Um, I would caution people against that because technology, like a knife, you can use it for good, you can use it for evil. One of the things that was highlighted in the show is that this kind of technology can be used to create bioweapons. And with every genetic modification, there might be unintended, unforeseen consequences. So just as this might lead us to utopia, it's just as likely that this might lead us to dystopia. So that's this one pitfall, I think, this mindset of uncritical acceptance. On the other hand, the other extreme error, I think, is to look at this technology as just completely evil. You know, just no way, Jose, we're not going to do this at all. Because if you look at the history of technology, often what you see is people resist it their doomsday scenario doesn't come to pass and we find some kind of a happy middle somewhere. For example, if you think about the Industrial Revolution, um, there was a great deal of resistance against it because we thought this is going to be a doomsday scenario where you know we're going to be completely replaced by these, these machines, nobody's going to have a job, so on and so forth. Well, Industrial Revolution, uh, at least the first one, has come and gone, and it hasn't come to that. And so uh, I would caution against these two extremes and try to look at the potential good and the potential bad of this technology. It seems like we have kind of a, a reverse Wally future scenario, if you've seen the movie Wally, where in Wally, you got all these people that have, you know, because of technology, they have nothing to do, and they're just big, fat, and lazy. But it's kind of interesting with this technology, future could look a little bit different. It could be people lounging around, but in being, instead of being fat, they could just be beautiful, muscular, and lazy. It raises an interesting question that, I, I again, I don't have the answers to this, but I think these are things that are important to think about, is when, you know, because we've got these ideals often 
of what makes, you know, the perfect person. So whatever ideal you've got, okay, of what makes the perfect person, what happens when you have a society of that ideal? So everyone is that ideal. What kind of effects does that have on a society? I think those are questions that we've not thought about. You know, we've never been in that headspace to think, okay, you know, right now we're talking about what are these genetic modifications going to have? But there's that overarching question when you have all these sorts of edits that are taking place within a society, what kind of effects does that have on the society itself? We'll leave those with you. Those are questions that we're going to be picking up in March as we address on our Friday night discussion, okay, what do the next 10 years look like? What are important things that we need to be thinking about? I'm excited for it and uh, hope to see many of you come and join us. Yeah. And I was also thinking if you listeners happen to come across some really good resource on this, feel free to send it our way. We can't always guarantee that we'll be able to respond to it, but we'd be happy to hear from you as well. This, I think, is going to be a collaborative project, if you will. So feel free to send those resources our way as well. Yeah, particularly if you've come across any Christians who have thoughtfully responded to this question. We've tracked down as many as we have been able to thus far. But if if you've got any others, by all means, send them our way. We would love to see anyone else who's thoughtfully responded to these sorts of questions. Well, thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apolitics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, ciao.